1: What choices do you
0: make in a day, in a year, in a lifetime?
1: How many really matter in the end? Do you agonize over the small ones and avoid the important ones? Here on my lift, in this place where all things are possible, your choice
0: matters. Your choices require sacrifice.
1: Will you make the right one? Choose to listen to The Lift in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now iHeartRadio.
0: The Wicked Library is not intended for sensitive listeners. If you're a sensitive listener, listen very closely. Are you ready? Of course you are, sweetheart. Stop listening to the bloody show! You're sensitive! This could be very harmful to your mental capacity! <laughs> Why are you still listening? I just said it wasn't intended for you! You're not going to have fun here! You're going to have nightmares! And we your cats, Yes, you will! <laughs> Listen, a discretion is advised. Hello, kiddies. Have a seat, but don't relax. I am your librarian. And this time, there's plenty to be afraid of. Hold on to yourselves before something else grabs hold of you. Don't worry about the lights. It's darker than ever now. Start screaming. Something extra wicked this way comes. <laughs>
2: Welcome to episode number 729 of the Wicked Library. I'm your host, Daniel Foytek, and today's episode is our quarterly Extra Wicked Anthology. This show is made possible by our Patreon supporters. Each month, we read an Extra Wicked story for our Patreon supporters for their listening enjoyment. And then once a quarter, since our goal continues to be helping our contributors grow their audience, we compile those tales into a bonus episode. ...for all of our listeners to enjoy. Without the wicked support of our patrons, episodes like today's... ...and really the show itself... ...would not be possible. So, if you enjoy what we do... ...please support the authors by seeking out their work... ...and consider making a donation to our Patreon page... ...at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. It's the best way to ensure we can keep making the show you love. Now... We were so busy in September, working on our month-long celebration of Halloween, we opted not to produce a bonus Patreon story in September, and will instead be making two Patreon bonus tales this November, during our yearly break. So, while the rest of the listeners are waiting for us to get back, those that support us on Patreon will actually get two full episodes. So, today's episode has two stories rather than three But we do have something special today. We were recently approached by Zach Hill of Pandemonium's Calliope, who is a fan of the show. And Zach asked us if we'd like to share some of his work with our listeners. So today, three of these short horror works in the form of song will be interspersed between our two tales. These songs can be found on their self-titled album with the devil on the cover at pandemoniumscalliope.bandcamp.com There's also going to be links in the show notes today. Now, Zach is a recording artist who specializes in writing what he calls horror jazz. Think peppy Latin rhythms, mariachi, and barbershop vocals with dark lyrical content. Sometimes he adapts classic horror poems like Lovecraft and Arthur Conan Doyle, and other times, he writes original lyrics with fun references to horror works. One such example is What's in the Box? A sprightly take on John Doe from the movie Seven. Hi, I'm William Somerset. and Today on the Wicked Library, I thought I might share this song with you. It's about little road trips. You see, sometimes when I'm not being God or talking about penguins or wormholes or driving around Miss Daisy, I like to go out into the desert with my partner, David, and a guy who looks a lot like Kevin Spacey. When we're out there, we open up boxes. It's always a surprise for David, who just can't help wondering, what's in the box? <laughs>
3: I'm
4: coming over to your house Gonna creep in like a mouse Spend some time in another man's shoes I can't believe with the wife Just a taste of a simple life I tried my best, I guess my best wouldn't do <laughs> <laughs> What's in the box? Not the street, but my treat is all out of the plan. What's in the box? I will not tell you what's in the box.
2: Was What's in the Box, a song by Pandemonium's Calliope. So, up next, we have a story called Devil's Hour by a returning author, Julia Benali. You can find Julia's first story with us, Donna or Tara, as episode number 617 of the Wicked Library. Today's story is told by Nicole Goodnight and yours truly. Devil's Hour by Julia Benali. Told by Daniel Foytek and Nicole Goodnight. Thunder rumbled in the gray distance as drops of icy rain sprinkled around Mario and Carla, who crouched just outside the giant house. Great oaks in their autumn garb shaded the mansion. The orange leaves stood in stark contrast to the ominous sky. A gravel drive wound through the trees to the giant porch flanked with colonial columns. There were no neighbors here, for the mansion was so far up in the mountain that snowplows never traveled the long dirt road up to this chimera in the middle of the forest.
0: Mario, what are we doing here?
2: said Carla.
0: You said we were going to go get ice cream.
2: We're getting the money here, said Mario. He was about seventeen. Carla was eight. She had no clue what her uncle planned to do with this house. How could it possibly mean getting ice cream, when all the ice cream was at Dairy Queen? Besides, this house didn't look like an ice cream sort of place. It was an ominous spectacle, though it had sparkling white walls, rows and rows of windows, a princess tower with a balcony on one corner, and a giant playset on the other side. Now, this was a different matter. It had jumbo slides, endless monkey bars, bridges, walkways, and lookouts. Carla gazed hungrily at this spectacle of delight.
0: Are we going to play on the jungle gym?
2: She said. No, Mario rolled his eyes. I thought you wanted ice cream.
0: But what about the playset?
2: What about the playset? Carla frowned. Her uncle was not practical at all.
0: Do they have a dog?
2: The reservation was full of mutts. Carla hated every one of them. Of course not. Mario jogged through the oak trees, his black backpack bouncing behind him. He didn't go to the front door. Instead, he hurried around to the back, nearer the magnificent jungle gym. Carla groaned as she forced herself to pass by. The playset was bigger than the one she had seen at McDonald's. What she would give to have one of those. She could see herself and her little friends running all over it. Mario stopped at a window. Hopefully they don't have ADT. But they'd have a sign on a tree somewhere or on the gate if they did. He glanced at his watch. We have an hour before your mom starts freaking out. Carla paid no mind to his words. The playset was calling.
0: Can I play on it for a little while?
2: Mario's mouth tightened. Fine, but you can't tell your mom and dad, or I'll never bring you here again. Yes! Carla scrambled into the giant playset, heart pumping with ecstasy.
0: Wanna play with me?
2: Mario shook his head as if she shouldn't be a child, and broke the window with a blackjack from his bag. As he dusted the glass away with a brush... Carla clambered to the top of the highest slide and previewed this forbidden domain. The mountain marking the reservation border a couple miles away peeped out from the orange, yellow, and green forest. Rainy mist surrounded its peak. A black crow darted across the treetops, screeching as if it had found out that its mate had cheated on it. Looking up at the window of the princess tower... Carla espied a pale, pointed face, glaring at her from behind a dark red curtain. Then, it vanished. The smile wiped from the girl's face.
0: Mario! Someone's inside!
2: I'm not playing, Mario snipped. These guys left this morning. They're snowbirds. They're gone until next summer. Though Mario had seen the inmates closing up their house for the winter... He had no clue if they had left for good. But he knew everything. He had busted into the best houses these last few years. If only his niece hadn't begged to come. Next time, he would think of a better cover story than Ice Cream. Get down here so we can get the money... uh, for the ice cream.
0: But someone's in the house.
2: Mario decided to humor her. Don't worry, Carla. I know them. We're friends. Okay. Carla slid down and hurried to the window.
0: Why don't you knock on the front door?
2: Mario resisted the urge to slap her naive face. We're playing a game. Don't worry, it's okay.
0: But you're allowed to break the glass?
2: They didn't like this glass anyway. He grinned at his own wit. They wanted me to break it. Oh. Carla wasn't sure, but her uncle was very old and wise. Mario crawled inside first leaving Carla to fend for herself. By the time she climbed inside and nearly splattered her face on the floor, Mario had gone into a different room. He was always leaving her behind. She had to learn to be faster, for her uncle had things to do and places to go, as all adults did. Carla stood up, rubbing her knees. She was in a kitchen of pale marble floors, granite tabletops, and glass cupboards. Large windows looking out on the brilliance of the autumn forest let in gallons of light. If only the scent of apple pie hung in the air instead of vinegar. Which reminded her, her mom was making apple pie to go with the ice cream. Mario had better hurry up. Hot apple pie and cold ice cream were the best. Carla sauntered through the kitchen. She touched everything her little grubby hands could reach. Her kitchen at home worked, but this place was a masterpiece of design. Her eyes landed on a massive silver fridge with drawers on it. Rich, white people always had delectable things in their fridges. Things no one else could buy. Skipping to the fridge, she looked inside and grimaced. Slabs of raw steak swam in their own scarlet juices on dozens of white plates. The bitter odor of exposed blood turned her stomach, and Carla shut the doors. She loved steak as well as the next meat-eater, but that was just gross. There were two ways out of the kitchen. One way led down a hall with white carpet further to the back of the house. The other led towards the front, It was covered with a gauzy curtain. Carla could just make out an entranceway. The spectral image of the face crossed her mind, but she had always wanted to walk through a gauzy curtain like a diva. Besides, her designer heart woke within her, and she wished to see the rest of the house. Stepping through the curtain, with all the majesty her sodden form could muster, she beheld a majestic stairway that split in two directions. Carla would have loved it but rough wooden beams formed a dark ribcage over the ghostly pale ceiling. Not a picture or a color was to be seen on the ashen walls. It looked like they had just moved in and hadn't unpacked yet. One would think all that beauty outside would be cause for superior inspiration. In disgust, Carla continued through the entryway towards another filmy curtain. This led to the pallid living room, which was in the same state of hideous shabby chic, The fireplace rose like a black staff to the towering ceiling. Its grate was of shiny gold, expensive fangs for a voracious maw. Suppose glowing eyes appeared in those gloomy depths. Carla struggled to wipe the awful thought from her mind. White couches had been arranged in a semicircle around the grate, leaving the outskirts of the living room bare. Carla rubbed her arms as a chill tickled her spine. Despite the furniture, an emptiness lay on the quiet room. An emptiness full of invisible eyes. Padding through the couches, she discovered a luxurious black throw peppered with small dots of white and gray. Pictures of sparse faces with white-eyed sockets littered the hideous thing. Mario, Carla whispered. She didn't care if they were playing a game. A feeling that she wasn't supposed to be here lay on her like an icy weight. Which way had her uncle gone? She walked to the other side of the living room and realized there were stairs on the wall. It was guarded by another wall, so anyone who walked in would never know they were there. Carla headed up the hard marble steps. Her squeaking wet shoes threatened to slip on the cold, sharp edges. If she fell, Mario probably wouldn't come help her. How could she get home if she broke herself? At the top, the marble gave way to white carpet. One could fall face first on it and not get hurt. Doors lined a long corridor. Carla tried each one, but they were locked. One of them finally opened into a golden bathroom with a mural of a forest painted in Japanese style. Standing out like a blood clot was a scarlet sink looked neither authentic nor classy it glowed mario carla called as she fled the bathroom closed the door tight behind her she ran down the hall tried all the doors but none of them opened she scurried up a small stair that twisted around the corner still no door would open mario her voice rose but he did not answer suppose he had left her She skidded to a stop. The best thing to do was to return to the kitchen. Trying one more door just in case Mario was inside, she entered a pale chamber with ceiling tiles. Little pictures of birds and flowers stood out in high relief in each center. Light gleamed through a huge picture window framed by dark red curtains. It led onto a mini balcony, which Carla could not admire in her fearful state. A canopy of lace and silk shaded a massive four-post bed, while a jet-black vanity lurked in one corner. The wide mirror reflected the room like a white eye in a midnight face. Creepy chills tumbled across Carla's skin. Going to the window and looking out, she spotted the top of the magnificent playset. She could see where she had stood when she had surveyed the land. Her hand slid over the velvety curtain. I'm in its room, she thought. The realization didn't strike like a hammer, but like a creeping fear that seeped into every aspect of her being. The heavy weight of an ominous presence pressed on her back. She spun around, screaming at her own reflection in the large mirror. She fled from the room and down the hall. To her horror, she couldn't find the way back to the kitchen. Tears threatened to overpower her eight year old frame as she stumbled upon a staircase. She remembered that she had walked up one when she had entered this hall. These had to be the same steps that led back down. But as she descended, the walls closed around her. The light dimmed. A soft whimper escaped her lips. But she couldn't crumple up here. To die in a place like this was more than she could bear the first window Carla saw she would break it and crawl free at the bottom of the ominous steps stood a door stained with streaks of fresh blood and a scarlet handprint a little bigger than her own Carla stared in rising consternation what was she going to do she glanced back up the steps as far as she was concerned it made no difference whether she were here by the door or at the top of the stair only there might be a window she could break beyond this door. Please be locked, she whispered in a tremulous voice and tried the golden latch. The door opened without a sound and an awful stench punched her nose. It was like the time a raw chicken breast had fallen in between the fridge and the counter. Nobody had cleaned it up and it had poisoned the house with a nauseating odor. Blessed daylight gleamed from a partially open door across the spacious basement, but Carla didn't move. Blood stained the couches, slicked the hard floor, and trickled down the kitchen walls. A partition holding a huge flat screen blocked off a part of the kitchen from whence disembodied light gleamed. If Carla wanted to get out, she would have to pass that unknown area where anything could be hiding. The oppressive silence sent prickles across her skin. Did she dare go to the door? The pale light urged her to come. Just as she decided to make a break for it, something brushed against a wall. Carla froze, heart seized up. Did these people have a dog? Was it mean? As her dark eyes roved across the dim room... A pale hand splattered with blood gripped the edge of the kitchen wall, and a girl's head poked out. She stared at Carla with sunken eyes from a pointed scarlet face. Dark blood dripped from ragged, pale strands of long, unkempt hair. Carla's eyes widened as one sensation passed through her. She was utterly alone. Little did she know what would come next. An ugly growl escaped those gory lips, the eyes rounded with animalistic bloodlust. Heart skipping a beat, Carla dashed back upstairs. Where was she going? Everything looked the same. What if she never found the way out, but wandered in this house forever with that thing living in the halls? As a panicked scream threatened to escape, She hit marble stairs and stumbled down into the foyer. Thank goodness! Wiping the wet from her eyes, she darted into the kitchen.
0: Mario! Mario!
2: She looked around her. Maybe Mario had gone through the other hall. She glanced at the window. Maybe she should wait for him outside. Just as she decided this was the better choice, rough breathing sounded by the bilious curtain. Carla's heart seized up Her body couldn't seem to turn around fast enough As she cast her eyes toward the foyer A scarlet form stood behind the filmy curtain Staring at her Time seemed to stop Carla backed towards the other hallway What was this monster that looked like a little girl? A low growl issued from the figure behind the curtain The time warp shattered Screaming in terror Carla fled. The specter dove through the filmy barrier, hands first, landing on all fours, and charged. Carla raced through the house with the thing snapping on her heels. Its guttural snarls filled her ears, ricocheted off the walls. Rough teeth nipped her pant leg. Hard fingers grabbed at the back of her sweater. Carla started crying. (laughs) Her legs jellified. Her breath stabbed her lungs. She shouted for her mother, though she knew she was nowhere near. A long corridor opened before her. Since the room at the end of that other hall had been open, Carla's panicked brain expected this one to be open as well. Bypassing the other door, she sprinted to the safe haven at the end. She pulled the head of the beast in hopes of survival. As she seized the handle... The monster let loose an ear-rattling screech. Her own screech lost in the abominable din. Carla twisted the handle and stumbled into the room. She slammed the door shut and the fiend's gory visage. Its head slammed against the heavy wood. The door shuddered. Just as Carla pushed the lock into the handle, it jiggled like loose change in a piggy bank. Gasping for breath, Carla sunk onto the bed in wild sobs covering her mouth she leaned over her knees and whimpered for her mother why had she come here she should be at home eating apple pie watching cartoons and playing with her friends the desperate need to go home gripped her like a vice and soon overpowered every other emotion she would get out of here wiping her eyes she forced her thoughts together went to the window and climbed onto the balcony Little did she realize that she had arrived at the same room as before, for only the princess tower had a balcony. From there, she espied Mario sitting with his back to her at the top of the tallest slide. Red liquid trailed from the bottom of the playset where he sat, but Carla only saw her uncle. Relief flooded her frame. He hadn't left her behind. He would take care of this monster. He was bigger than it. She cupped her hands to her mouth. Hello. He didn't even look at her. Thinking he couldn't hear her, Carla placed her shaking hands at the balcony's side and looked for a way down. She would crawl onto the roof if there was none. But to her relief, she discovered a lattice beside the balcony. Crispy brown leaves slept on a russet vine that crept up the white wood. Carla never considered falling as she began her descent. Halfway there, the door inside the room cracked and the awful pounding ceased. Carla's heart went into her mouth. The thought passed more like a feeling through her. The door had been opened. As if drawn by magnets, Carla's eyes traveled up the lattice to the balcony's edge. The wild girl grimaced at her. A few drops of blood dripped from those grimacing lips onto Carla's cheek. And then it leaped over the side of the balcony and shot down as agile as a chimp. Screaming, Carla's grip slipped. She plummeted several feet before she could seize hold of the delicate wood. It broke beneath her momentum, tearing her palms and jamming splinters into her flesh. The vine shredded. Carla slammed the ground in a shower of brown leaves. Pain ripped through her frame as the breath was knocked from her body. In a haze, she watched the creature scurry down the lattice like a great four-legged spider. It seemed so far away. But as Carla's breath returned, the monster's growls grew louder. Grabbing hold of the lattice had slowed the girl's fall enough so she hadn't broken anything. Struggling to her feet, Carla staggered for the playset. No sooner did she reach its twisted confines, the animalistic girl dropped to the ground. Whatever pain Carla felt vanished. She scrambled inside a tunnel. The monstrosity sprinted toward the playset. It reached the tunnel, but instead of crawling inside, it leaped atop the equipment and jumped from one area to another until it landed on a tunnel with little windows. Carla was inside. Thrusting its hand into a window, it snatched at the girl's frame, tangled its powerful fingers into her hair. It wrenched at her as if it would rip her head through the small opening. Screaming in terror and pain, Carla managed to turn her head and bite the translucent flesh until blood stained her teeth. With a startled howl, the devil child jerked its member back. Carla sped into an enclosure with a lookout window. The fiend glared through the small holes in the ceiling. It barked and pounded as if it would break through. Still glaring at Carla, it darted to the edge of the playset. It occurred to the young girl, in a foggy way, that the thing planned to swing inside to join her. With all the strength and speed she could muster, Carla dashed up another tunnel reaching Mario in the small area on top of the slide. Mario! Mario! Carla grabbed his arm, but he slumped over, a great hole in his neck. Pieces of him had been gnawed on. His right arm was nothing but bone. His blood dripped through the holes in the landing, the way a saturated sponge releases its juices. Screaming in horror, Carla stumbled backward and bumped into the edge of the tunnel, from whence she came somewhere in the back of her mind she knew the monster had done it and had dragged his body to its highest point the way a leopard plants its kill in a tree Carla cupped her shaking hands over her mouth the rotting stench from the basement stung her nose snarls issued from atop the tunnel with a startled gasp Carla spun around and spotted the humanoid beast perched above her it sprang. Carla threw up her arms, and the savage fiend's body pinned her against the cutting edge of the rail. Its teeth gnashed at her face like a wild cur's. Blood and foam flecked Carla's cheeks. The putrid odor circled her head, killing the scent of the dead, wet leaves and cold rain. Mommy! Mommy! Carla's cries drowned in panic-stricken screams. With Mario's body taking up most of the space on the landing, the bestial child's movements were too cramped for its taste. Leaping onto the rail, it grasped its victim's hair and wrenched her head back. Its putrid maw thrust for Carla's face, but the girl's sense of self-preservation rocketed through her frame. She would do what it took to survive. It was as if she stepped back and watched the ensuing events on a screen her mind stripped to its raw element. Kill or be killed. Carla gouged her bitten fingernails into its eyes and squeezed. The creature howled in pain. Blood gushed down its cheeks. As it jerked away from her, its balance faltered and Carla shoved it off the rail. Screeching in more fury than fear, the demon plummeted for the ground below and smashed headfirst into the wood chips. Crack! Its head rolled a perfect 360 and the body collapsed beside it. The bloody eye socket stared at Carla as if still refusing to lose sight of her. Carla gazed back, chest heaving. She had killed, but she didn't see a human being laying down there. She could go home now. That was all that mattered. As she moved to go down the slide, which had lost its magic... A sound touched the air. Her frazzled mind couldn't register what the noise was, but her eyes roved toward the road in the oak trees. A splash of scarlet moved among the leaves. Ducking into the tunnel, she watched from its small windows. A Durango pulled up to the house. A man and woman, with hair as pale as the savage child's, stepped from the car, toting shopping bags and new appliances. They looked classy in their wool coats and stylish haircuts. The toast of country club society.
0: It's so wonderful having Joy as a guard dog. We don't have to pay for home security or anything.
2: The man chuckled. (laughs) You said it. He whistled as if calling a dog. Joy! Joy! Come here, girl. They seemed puzzled. Where is she?
0: I hope she didn't run off again.
2: The woman adjusted a lamp box in her arm.
0: She's probably in the basement. She likes eating down there.
2: The man put the key in the lock. You're probably right. They went inside and Carla slid down the slide. The man gave a muffled whistle inside the house. But Carla knew he would receive no answer. What went on in the house did not matter to Carla, or how that monster girl came to be. The path to her house sequestered in pine trees swallowed her mind. There, Mommy and Apple Pie waited for her. Sprinting past the Durango, she rushed towards the safe confines of the oak trees. As she reached the tree line, the man's blusterous voice bellowed. Hey! Carla's legs froze. She glanced back and saw him at the balcony staring at her. His face reddened and contorted in rage. Like a savage beast, he leaped from the balcony onto the lattice. Horror washed over Carla's frame. He, too, was a devil. What would he do if he caught her? She tore for the woods. Out here, she knew where she was going. As she vanished among the autumn leaves, the man reached the ground and pursued. Like a hunted deer, Carla dodged among the trees towards the mountain that marked the reservation line. No longer was it the border between native and white, but a portal from this strange dimension into the real world. The man's wild cries echoed behind her, gaining as his long legs propelled him over the wet ground. Carla glanced back, but she didn't see him yet. Finally, the barbed wire fence separating her from the mountain cut across her path, and she dove underneath. The barbs reached their rusted points for her soiled sweater, combing her grimy hair but failed to keep hold wet leaves dampened her front and stuck to her jeans wheezing for air Carla scrambled into the trees by the time the man reached the barbed fence his quarry was nowhere to be seen he glared at the mountain a snarl cracking his bitten lips howling at the stormy sky he gnashed his teeth until they clipped his ragged lips Where are you? He gripped the barbs, twisted his ruddy hands around them as if they were a child's neck, until blood streamed. The only things witnessed his madness were the trees and a pair of frightened black eyes from behind an outcropping of rock. With one last screech to wake the dead, he stormed away until the forest swallowed him up and silenced his wails with orange leaves.
4: Please may I have your daughter Please may I hold her hand It's been hours, I've been waiting for her Please, don't you understand Please may I hold her hand Please can I have your daughter Then I hold her hand It's been hours I've been waiting for her Please don't you understand
0: More story to come. <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on?
2: <laughs> hey there. Do you like legends, myths, and whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. For more information, head over to
4: legends, myths, and whiskey.com.
2: You've tried washing it off, rubbing, scraping, scratching, and sanding it off. You've even tried grinding, cutting, and burning it off. But still it remains. It's... Zombie skin. So foreign to your own eyes, you wonder, are you still fully human? Or have you become... The Contamination. Whether you're struggling with cold sores, eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, cuts, scrapes, scuffs, tears, chronic rash, or any of the endless ailments we all wish never happened, the antidote is the truly endless repair. Head over to zombielips.squarespace.com to buy the antidote. Become human again. Get yours today. Welcome back. Up next, we have a great tale by Erin Vleck. Erin has been on our show multiple times in the past. Her first story was Dear Cousin Gavin, episode number 622 of the Wicked Library. She was also in our Halloween special last year for 2016. That was a live show we did. She was the author of episode number 706, The Roadman. And also, she had a story in our Chris Massacre episode, episode 708. A great writer who always delivers a great, scary, creepy tale. Aaron Vleck brings us today, The Case of the Black Lodge. Told by David Alt and Erica Sanderson.
3: The Case of the Black Lodge by Aaron Vleck. A group of us had sequestered regularly at the country home of one of the most notable and accomplished men of this age, the great traveller, scholar, author and detective of all things arcane and terrifying to the faint of heart, Geoffrey Sykes Vermilion. On the last Friday of each month we gathered at the crumbling estate on Heath Lane, just an hour's drive outside the city, where we would dine on the superior comestibles of Vermilion's table and then retired to the study to be warmed by the most excellent brandy I have ever consumed, and chilled by the most singular and curious tales. The ritual endured without variation for some years, and had become quite the routine. Our number never wavered, and the seven of us plus our good host had grown well accustomed to one another. We suffered the presence of no outsiders or diminution of our party unless by the most urgent of pressing matters, and guarded rather jealously the parameters and locale of our association. Suffice it to say that on that blustery late October evening, when we retired to Vermilion's darkened study, after an excellent rib roast and fresh asparagus, only to find another already seated there in the shadows, we were taken aback and damn well not pleased. Decorum required we abstain from protest, and silently awaited our host's explanation. We took to our regular perches, snifters in hand, and said explanation was soon forthcoming. At ease, gentlemen. Our visitor, Vermilion, said, gesturing broadly toward the figure seated serenely by the fire, is Miss Allegra Barlow. As I relate the harrowing details of her story, I am sure you will glean why I have asked her to join us here this evening. He paused for a moment as our eyes adjusted to what meagre light the blazing fire on the hearth and a few candles provided, and we had a chance to discreetly examine Miss Barlow. She was a stunningly handsome and imposing figure, tall and willow-fine as she sat, with cropped and bobbed copper-coloured hair and the raiment of both the smart flapper and the lady of no small material means." I detected a mountain of luxurious furs tossed casually over the other end of the lounge on which she sat. Despite her great beauty and poise as she sat before us, I felt an inexplicable caution as we discerned this was no flippant girl or woman of the ordinary sort, but rather a creature of profound dignity and personal bearing. I am sure we all assumed she must be among the foreign royalty currently holidaying in town, or an important personage of vast worldly accomplishment. All of this, and none of it, as it happens, was true, but hear of it in Vermilion's own words. I am acquainted with Miss Barlow through certain channels of my own, and we have shared our thoughts on many subjects of keen interest to us both on frequent occasions over the years of our association." When an urgent note arrived, asking me to join her at her residence last week, I went at once, certain that no frivolous social call would be solicited by such a person, especially in the middle of the night. Vermilion paused to refill our glasses, nodding at the lady and noting her refusal with a swift movement of her hand. Though her face remained partly obscured, I sensed with every fibre of my being that we were being scrutinised in minute detail by eyes that were neither impressed nor charmed by our manly prowess and virtues, nor by the costly and fashionable cut of our suits and waistcoats. It was only Vermilion's relaxed and pleasant demeanour toward the woman that encouraged my own hackles to flatten against my back, and my body to relax into my seat. No odious creature or bane enemy would be invited into this house, nor would any possibly gain egress against the resolute will of its formidable resident." When I arrived at Miss Barlow's home, he continued, it was well past midnight, but she was still in full evening dress, and the large formal reception room was rudely ransacked. But it was the other curious details that commanded our attentions. The body on the doorstep, bloodied, broken, and stripped of its clothing, settled my mind on the nature of the late-night call to arms. Before I proceed, certain aspects of Miss Barlow's curriculum vitae must be revealed if you are to understand the extent of our association and the gravity of her predicament. Allegra, Miss Barlow, is the lodge mistress of Anubis Lodge, the Grand Lodge of the Order of. Well, I will leave certain details to Miss Barlow's privacy. Perhaps later, if time permits. His words trailed off as he watched my companions and I shift uneasily in our seats. Miss Barlow's home, located in a guarded location, is one of the largest private dwellings in town and serves as her home and as the temple for the Anubis Lodge. She has renovated the mansion at great personal expense and with formidable resources, and the results are a stunning tableau that any high-born Nubian priest of antiquity would bristle with pride to preside over. But on the night in question, Miss Barlow had just returned from an evening in the country. What she discovered was her front door shattered, the place a shambles, and her servants viciously murdered. You are probably wondering why she called me instead of more orthodox criminal authorities. Our association, of course, notwithstanding, it was the severity of the crime and the identity of the suspects that caused my name to spring most naturally to mind. You see, the initiates of Anubis Lodge have been engaged with something of a war with the Black Lodge for some time, and things, you might say, had finally come to a head. Despite my years of experience and familiarity with death, both murder most foul and mundane, as well as that steeped in the timbre of the macabre and worlds unseen, What unfolded in the wee hours of the morning within the walls of Anubis Lodge was chilling and most foul indeed. Now attend to what I am about to say, for it will undoubtedly be among the most shocking revelations of all that I will have shared with you regarding the occult side of my dealings, which, up to now, you may have assumed I merely dabbled in. Not so... The other reason my dear friend Allegra called me onto the case is because of my expertise in certain rites and practices found among the highest and most obscured valleys of Tibet. I refer to Bern, the precursor to the coming of Buddhism in Tibet, and the teachings of its sorcerous lamas. Now be still, I see you lot bristling in your seats, not all that's dark is evil and subtlety is what makes this world of ours an interesting and tolerable place. I had spent some years in Tibet and had become familiar with its hidden mysteries, but more on this later. The denizens of the Black Lodge do not partake of the paths and practices of Burn, but my adepthood in these matters had proven quite useful on other occasions, outside the usual occult mummery most spiritualists get up to these days. Nothing on the tragic scene at Anubis Lodge had been tampered with in any way before my arrival. Allegra and I made cursory and then more in-depth investigations into all that we discovered. Then I learned more of the aforementioned war with the black initiates. The first body, that of poor old William, found naked on the very threshold of the front door, was arranged in a most provocative display with arms and legs twisted bizarrely in a manner unlikely to be happenstance. It was Allegra who pointed out the similarity of the misshapen body to a certain noxious sigil used by the elders of the Black Lodge to gain entry to places from which they are otherwise strictly barred. You might well ask, how was such a powerful edifice of the arcane arts as the Lodge of Anubis so easily breached when, I can assure you, the lady seated with us this evening is fully capable of guarding her fortresses? How, indeed. As the story unfolded, the Black Lodge had infiltrated the Anubis stronghold in seeming good faith when various of their members had staged a defection from their ranks and sought asylum and spiritual sanctum, with Allegra and her initiates. Five members of the Black Lodge had left their former order and had taken initiation into the way of Anubis. Over time they learned enough of her secrets to mount an attack. Seduction is a powerful and dangerous thing. The original five interlopers had managed to turn five more Anubians to their own schemes and greater secrets sprang open at their touch. Allegra had learned of this treachery, and through various means had determined the scope and nature of the plot, and the identity of the infected, among which was her own young cousin. Indeed, the purpose for the sojourn in the countryside that very night had been to deploy certain measures with the help of a sister lodge, and to gather the troops to clean house at Anubis Lodge, and rid the place of the spectral infestation. After carefully examining William's body and confirming the dread sigil arranged upon his poor broken limbs, the mistress of the lodge escorted me to the temple room where the remaining victims were found in most distasteful disarray. Like William, the butler's body was mangled, but he was stretched out in a horrid, elongated manner and twisted about to form the image of a snake devouring its tail. I shall leave further details to your imaginations, but the obscene spectacle did not in the least resemble Ouroboros. Again, the sigil was familiar to the lady and myself as that depicting an act of vile desecration of the human form and the mark sacred to a certain denizen of the black pathways that I shall not name here aloud. Further lurid discoveries took the form of the cook, the chambermaid, a chore lad, and the night attendant of the sacred temple itself, The inner sanctum that none but initiates may enter together and conjoined the bodies of these six poor wretches these six sigils formed the great black wheel sacred to the enemy lodge and created an opening a birthing way by which all that is good and noble within the anubian path may be sucked away and perverted into nefarious energies and all that is unholy, vile, and unclean may enter into the world to cavort and frolic about at will. A soft thud rocked me from my rapt absorption with Vermilion's voice, and I noticed my snifter had dropped from my hand and rolled across the carpet. I quickly retrieved it, only to realize my companion still sat mesmerized and oblivious of my clumsy blunder. For his part, our host shot me a reassuring glance and continued with his story. Allegra and I concluded our thorough investigation of the horrid intrusion and the sad bodies of her servants. Then we rang the so-called proper authorities, and ushered them into the house to do their worst. Against all normal procedure and propriety, however, we spirited the final affront from the premises before the authorities arrived, and secured it at a far remove from the house.' It had lain upon the floor of the inner temple itself, and formed the very substance of profanity. The thing reeked of the charnel house and the public toilets all at once, and we had to wrap our faces before we saw to its... needs. The abomination must have been alive after some manner of speaking, but it had not, hopefully, ever been human. The thing was circular and flat as a large black pancake formed of a tar-like substance and other indiscernible matter, and measured about eight feet in diameter. As hideous as it sounds, for the life of me, the thing resembled nothing so much as an infernal black placenta, and I have no doubt that it served some such or similar purpose in the night's proceedings. Needless to say, when we disposed of the thing, it was thoroughly and utterly dead— we saw to that. Then it was burned and buried. This brought me sharply around, and I gasped and heard my companions groaning and shaking their heads. What was Vermilion about? Why was he telling us all this, when, before, his tales, as uncommon and unbelievable by many and steeped in occult lore and shenanigans as they were— remained the stuff of damn good yarns that didn't cause the hackles and bile to rise among the company. We had no recourse but to hear the story to its conclusion, so we settled back and tossed off another round of drinks in hopes of good, wholesome fortification arising thereby. The next day, after the authorities had removed all sad human remains, the mistress of the lodge gathered her flock and we set to work. I had returned home briefly to gather the implements and artefacts peculiar to my trade, and certain ritual garments appropriate to such adventures, and then returned to the Anubis Lodge, where things were progressing apace. Now, lest you erroneously assume that the good mages of Anubis Lodge and their mistress are not capable of mounting the necessary return of martial volleys without calling in outside assistance such as myself, note these two fine points. Firstly, the lady and I have quite a history together, and she has often called me in not as saviour, but as colleague and partner. Secondly, one must understand that the various forms of magic, occult studies, arcane spiritualities and the like, form together the spokes of a great wheel of their own, and while they have overlapping qualities and areas of inquiry, each brings its own unique potency to bear upon any matter." You may recall the tale of the elephant and the five blind men. Each grasps a part of the beast and believes it to be the whole. The man in front grabs the trunk and believes the elephant is a snake. Another bloke embraces a leg and swears the creature is a tree. Another takes the animal's body for a wall, and so on. When we assembled in the temple room to mount our counter-assault upon the Black Lodge, the Anubians were regaled in their glorious robes of office and degree their sacred weapons and sigils of honour emblazoned proudly, among those desolate icy peaks and obscured mountain valleys. When we began, Allegra took her place at the centre of the congregation and performed four banishings, each more potent and arcane than its predecessor. Certain incenses were set alight and the heady smoke soon filled the room, Then we fell into the deep and ordered reverie that forms the basic working rite of the lodge. I sat outside the circle of the Anubians, and together Allegra and I intoned certain formulas we had composed for the purpose, and that must needs be never uttered again thereafter. We had not long to wait, as the enemy lodge must have been decamped nearby in the seldom-travelled corners of adjacent space, to await the throwing of the gauntlet to the floor. Within moments, the clean, fragrant smoke of the temple incense was dispelled by oily, noxious fumes that reeked of burning rubber and animal dung. Following Allegra's lead, we covered our faces with the sashes from our robes and steeled our resolve. The initiates closed the gap between them and locked arms where they sat as Allegra commanded the center of the temple.
1: I was the first to see them.
3: "'came an unfamiliar but clear and beautiful voice. "'I looked up to see our guest standing next to Vermilion where he sat. "'He had grown silent, and the lady of Anubis Lodge now commanded our attention, "'and we uttered not a sigh of resistance, "'but rather sat like terrified and besotted schoolboys "'before the magnificent woman who seemed to completely fill the room "'with her radiant, peaceful presence.
1: "'They clung to the floorboards and grew in size and number.' until they formed a swollen, unbroken chain around the perimeter of the circular room. Throbbing lumps of pale translucence, they trembled with an inner glow that almost made them appear beautiful, had we not known their thoroughly evil origins. They were the larvae, and we shuddered at their sight, but maintained our vigilance. Some of the younger among my company gaped, but remained in their places, having never seen such corporeal manifestation of the uncreated before. The larvae were but the footmen of our enemy, and I silently urged my companions to ignore them. Soon they dissolved and drifted away like mist that clings to gravestones at moontide. As I rose to begin my turns, a sickly green film seemed to fall across the room, and I knew my enemy was at hand. It was difficult to walk, ...as though I dreamed or walked against a heavy current but I continued on. I started walking the perimeter of the room... ...weaving in and out amongst my companions... ...and resuming my course along the wall. It was in this way that the enemy engaged with me. Our two paths are so similar in many ways... ...yet so very unlike in others, but we are familiar to one another. It was something like a dance that this invisible spectre led me through as we each took the measure of the other in the way hesitant lovers mirror the beloved. With my right index finger pointed towards the floor like a dagger, and my left hand fanning through the air, I gathered and repelled the energies that filled the room, and I knew my enemy did the same. I had never met the spectre in the flesh, but I knew that he was a man, the master of the Black Lodge, and that he had his minions, allies, and servitors, as did I. What he brought to bear upon me was hideous in the extreme. Yet I held him at bay and sensed that he was surprised by this. He thought that since he had raided the hen house and robbed me of the worst among my flock, that I was sufficiently weakened for him to take me. He pressed down hard upon me, and once, twice, three times he almost brought me to my knees. I heard one of my companions crying and I shot him a stern glance that bolstered his nerves and silenced him. When I felt that my enemy had grown arrogant and confident, I glanced at my old friend, and the greatest adept lama of the Bon Path of Sorcery outside of Tibet rose slowly in his black robes and joined me at my side. The deep throaty chanting rose in Vermilion's chest. It became a cacophony that drowned out the muttering and other noises that now filled the chamber. Then Vermilion left my side, and I heard the sound of something heavy dropping to the floor. My flesh tingled with terror and delight, and I longed to join him. The soft padding of feet plodded quickly Widdershins opposite to the dance I resumed about the chamber. I dared not glance at Vermilion as he made his way around the room and silently forbade my companions from doing so either. But I knew. I had seen on two other occasions the great black tiger that guarded my friend's soul, and which came to full material manifestation within his flesh when called. As my companions and I enacted a rite of western magic to defeat this oh-so-western enemy, my good friend Vermilion enacted the black meal rite of the Bon Cults, "'knowing the tiger spirit would be a thing unknown, unrecognized by the enemy and his acolytes "'and my own fallen companions who had joined him. "'The sounds of snuffling, growling, "'and the ripping apart of something by great claws "'was accompanied by screams "'and the fearful wailing of my initiates. "'I continued my dance, "'stabbing at the earth with one hand, "'grasping all I could from the airs and ethers around me with the other.' As I walked, I noticed a sticky substance had begun to gather on the floor, and the scents that rose were both sickly sweet and suffocating. I renewed my invocations and heard my companions growing bolder and joining in. First one, and then another, stood and joined in the circle I navigated around the room, oblivious of the giant black tiger that sped past them in the opposite direction. All of a sudden, there was a breathless pause. As if an unseen hand swept back a heavy curtain and let in breezes from places long forgotten by our frail human sensibilities. A screaming torrent sounded as a black waterfall of pure, unmanifest chaos, the mother of all impossible evils, poured into the room and then halted in perfect silence as a crushing weight threatened to bear us all to the ground. The moment had come, and only all of our efforts together could push back that dark tide. I heard a ferocious snarl and a roar that almost ruptured my eardrums. I collapsed on the ground as the form of a great black tiger leapt over me and into the waterfall. Then both disappeared, and all was silent, empty, as though we had yet even to begin the evening's activities. Somewhere outside, I heard sirens, many, many sirens, and voices shouting. I got up and ran to the window and threw back the heavy velvet drapes. In the distance, I saw a fire burning against the horizon of the night sky, as though half the city were being consumed by the gaping mouth of hell itself. I looked back at my companions and all was still, as though we had spent the night in peaceful meditation. Vermilion stood in the centre of the room, a man once more, his robes in disarray and torn in many places. He stood where I had stood, as though he had never left my side. I resumed my place beside him and bid my companions rise. I put my right finger to my lips and cast it sharply away. So it is done, I said firmly, and was answered by the entire company in like kind. Then we closed the temple and departed. The next day we learned that the fire had been started in the long-abandoned tunnels under the old part of the city, and had consumed almost a mile of the ancient Timberline subterranean passageway. We heard reports of dozens of burned bodies found down there, as well as the remains of a large quantity of mysterious flotsam and jetsam of occult antiquity. The Black Lodge had found a fitting home and final resting place in that blackened charnel pit.
3: The woman finished talking, and then she went to the sideboard and poured herself a snifter quite full of Vermilion's best, and returned to her seat among the shadows. And so you see, my friends, it is done, Vermilion said at last. <laughs> we just sat there, dumbfounded. Surely none of it could be true. But knowing Vermilion, who could tell? If it was true, what the damned hell were we supposed to make of it all? "'It is done,' Vermilion bellowed again, raising his glass to us and to the lady-mistress of Anubis Lodge who smartly returned his salute. "'We are done here with this little gentleman's club, I think, of boyish feasting and storytelling,' he added, refilling his glass and tossing it sharply back and gesturing for us to do the same, which we did. "'The others looked at me and I at them as we awaited further instructions or to be thrown out into the night.' "'or laughed at for our gullibility. "'So it is done,' Vermilion continued, taking his seat. "'We are no longer eight. "'We are nine, if the lady will have us. "'We will undertake a new line of inquiry "'and begin a deeper exploration of these matters "'you good fellows claim to be so interested in. "'But be of good cheer. "'From what I understand, nine is a very auspicious number.'
4: Be wary of the company you keep Cause the path is long and the valley is steep Said the path in the woods will show you the way Every dog must have his day Getting close now, you can smell the decay I'll hold my hands and I'll take you there. My love open looking for a snack Look how his skin is turning black Said the rope is tight and there ain't no slack Once we go
3: Now available from K.B. Goddard, the author of the Lift episode The Lost Library and the Wicked Library episodes The Darkness Within and Shadows, comes her debut novella, The Girl with the Roses. At the haunted auctions of Thornhill and Swift, where artefacts of the ghostly and the macabre are bought and sold, we learn of the statue entitled The Girl with the Roses. Charlotte Salt has always dreamt of marrying for love, But when she receives a proposal, she realises that romance isn't always the deciding factor in the Victorian marriage market. Married to the eligible but secretive George Avery, she finds herself cut off from her family and friends when her husband takes her to live in his isolated Derbyshire home. Trapped in a loveless marriage, she finds her thoughts turning towards her brother's newly returned friend, the handsome Charles Jameson. In failing health, and increasingly troubled by strange sights and sounds, she cannot help recalling Jameson's mysterious warning, Be on your guard. What danger did he foresee? As dark forces surround her, she contemplates the fate of her predecessor. What happened to the first Mrs. Avery? In a summer of storms, can anyone save her from the shadows? The Girl with the Roses is now available for pre order on Amazon and Kobo.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get Wicked Fun rewards, like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. Season 7 of the Wicked Library is sponsored in part by the Legends, Myths & Whiskey podcast. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com and, of course, in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Also sponsored in part by Zombie Lips. They make the antidote for the human condition. Get the cure at zombielips.squarespace.com All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode Microphones. Find out more information about their great products over at rode.com That's R O D E.com. A big thank you to Rode for helping us make the show sound so good. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Joy to find you. <laughs> Joy. Here, girl. Come on.
0: Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. society-13.com. I like to listen.